Today on CityCast Pittsburgh, it's that time of week again where we, the CityCast team, round up what you may have missed during the week in the news or just more of what you want to hear about. We've got a bunch of stuff for you today from a drug dealing former defense attorney, the latest on Swickley Academy, how Pittsburghers feel about Andy Warhol AI, and I know what you're thinking, no more bridge news, but yes, more bridge news. It's Friday, March 11th. I'm Morgan Moody, and this is CityCast Pittsburgh. The gang's all here today. We have senior producer Megan Harris. Hello. Lead producer Matt Stroud. Good morning. And newsletter editor Francesca DeBecco. Hi. I like saying your name. <laughs> so let's jump in. I don't know if you remember from Tuesday, we caught you up on what was going on at Swickley Academy. Students walked out of class last week to protest a bunch of changes and and teacher firings, administrative firings that have been happening at their school really since the summer. Um, And they've just kind of rolled over and continued into their school year. And there was a protest last week because some of the students, particularly students of color, say that they don't feel safe. They tried to deliver a petition where they got 110 students out of 230 students at the school to sign. And during that whole process, the police were called on the kids by one of the administrators. What? Yeah. When the police got there, one of the kids said that they thought it was a school shooting. So it was pretty, you know, unnecessary. I wonder what they were told that they showed up expecting something like that. Yeah. This all happened on March 3rd. So they, like I said, they got this petition and planned to deliver it to the new interim head of the school, Dr. Ashley Burtwell. And when they got over to that office, things kind of got heated. Parents were also there. There was another administrator. He was the assistant head of the school. He's now resigned. Did he resign this week? He resigned as of March 6th. Wow. Oh, man. Yeah. So directly related to this incident. Directly related to this incident, because like I said, there were parents there as well. So it's not necessarily just the student's word against the administrator's word. There was a press conference on Wednesday where the students really got to tell their side and they kind of rehashed uh, what happened and what went down that day. They tried to deliver the petition. You know, I watched the live stream on Facebook, but Morgan, you were there. So, you know, what was your reaction to to the kids? Yeah. I mean, you know, the students said that they weren't doing this to reinstate the teachers that have, you know, lost their jobs or anything like that. You know, while they're obviously impacted by a lot of the teachers leaving, they do have connections with some and a lot of them they consider to be allies because they were part of the diversity, equity, inclusion and social justice department. So even the guidance counselor uh, was fired on the spot on March 3rd trying to she was just allegedly consoling uh, one of the students who was pretty upset with the way everything was going down and she was fired on the spot and in front of parents. So that was kids said that that was pretty disturbing as well. Morgan, you said that the students aren't asking for uh, these teachers to be reinstated. What were they asking for? They're asking for a public apology. They're looking for a, a permanent DEISJ. Again, that's diversity and equity inclusion and social justice director. They want the board of trustees to host meetings that are open to the students, teachers, and parents at least once a month so that everybody's kind of aware of what's going on. Because I, I think some of these meetings have been strictly some parents and the board of trustees, but not necessarily open to everyone. And 
not necessarily the students, but in future hiring, they want, you know, qualified faculty and administrators from marginalized groups. So they kind of want administrators that look like the student body and represent them. Imagine that. So this is a small school. It is a private school, and yet it's receiving a lot of attention. Why is this uh, a story? And a that, lot of money. And a lot of money. Why is this a story that that people should be following? I think that the reason that people should be following this is because essentially it seems as if anybody who speaks out against the way as teachers and administrators there that have been you know speaking out or or just been allies to some of these kids that want to see change have effectively been, get, been getting terminated. And according to the students, you know, it's creating an unsafe environment for them. And so they should have people that are on their side. Um, they should have people that look like them at the school. They should have people who are, are rallying for them. And um, they shouldn't have to, you know, with all the changes that everybody's had to go through, especially during the pandemic, one of the last things you probably want to see, and especially in high school, is constant changes in teachers and administrators that you've kind of form this bond with. And it also seems like a microcosm of a lot of discussions that are happening around education around the country in this one little spot. The other thing too, I think, is like you're never more acutely aware of the concept of fairness than in your teen years, right? Mm-hmm. Like, And even though it's a small school, I think just because of the amount of money and wealth yeah. that they have surrounding it, you know, rallying behind a bunch of kids who feel very passionately about this and are learning some really hard lessons about how loud money can speak in real time right and helping them feel like they can speak truth to power is really important even if it is like just one small school in the grand scheme of the pittsburgh area yeah Yeah. and matt let's pivot over to your story what do you have going on my story is much less consequential (laughs) sorry about that there's a story that ran in the post gazette and it was also all over the web about a former rapper who uh, put out a video in 2014 that I remember. Now, this video is like very silly. Actually, we're going to play a little bit of it here. My name is Daniel Music, and I'm a criminal defense attorney based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I stand ready, willing, able, and committed to defend you on all manner of criminal charges, including murder, arson, burglary, bank robbery, simple and aggravated assault, and possibly even funny throwback crimes such as moonshining or pickpocketing. That's just good marketing. That sounds like Better Call Saul. It does. It does. <laughs> this guy changed his career from being a rapper to a lawyer um, to being the person who you should call for uh, you know, legal representation if you commit crimes. Um, he apparently left the law in 2017 to be a real estate uh, agent, something like that. And also he left to begin a massive marijuana grow and distribution operation. I mean, that was the moment for it, really, if you're thinking of it. You should have been legal, but that really was a good uh, early opportunity. Yeah. So I, I guess he went back to his roots. Ooh. <laughs> 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 So this story was fascinating to me, not only because of the video, not only because he, this is somebody who, you know, advertised that he was a criminal 
as a lawyer, and then he's being convicted as a criminal. But then I looked at the sentence that he received for his crime. So he's distributing marijuana, marijuana, which is legal for uh, medicinal, but not recreational purposes in, in the state of Pennsylvania. And his sentence is a minimum of five years in federal prison. Wow. As well as tens of thousands of dollars in uh, in fines related to this. I mean, I think that all mandatory minimums are garbage and just an extension of a really terrible war on drugs that obviously like damaged communities and have hurt, you know, at this point, probably millions of people. That aside, how big was his illegal grow operation? Yes. Because that, that matters question. to me. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the only thing that they say in the indictment is that it's more than a hundred kilos. So I don't know, load. man. Like you, if you started this in 2014, you had to see the writing on the wall that a legal industry was coming. While I think that it's incredibly flawed and a big problem as to how Pennsylvania does it, there was an avenue to get a license to do it legally, and he had to know that. I don't think it's that simple, though. I don't think it's that simple. Oh, either. I don't think it's simple at all. I think it's a big mess, but there it did exist, and an attorney should be uniquely like situated to figure that out if anyone can. Yeah, to try to go the legal route. Yes, and he's a white guy, and so we have to guy. think about he had some sort of privilege, <laughs> you know, that, is true. Yeah, that he could have been using. Yeah, and he did not, and so it makes you it makes you wonder like maybe this is actually a protest of some sort um, because he's talking about it because he's talking about the mandatory minimums and he's gotten a lot of coverage didn't I see that he gave a quote that said something about like laws are arbitrary that's yeah that is part of the video <laughs> <laughs> like really the video is is really funny it's like three minutes and 38 seconds something like that and yeah he gets into laws are arbitrary he spends 40 seconds describing all of the crimes that you can commit where he'll get you out of jail. And they include moonshining and pickpocketing. Like, he'll get you off for everything. <laughs> I mean, this guy, see, I, again, mandatory minimums suck. He should not be subject to that. No one should. Full stop. But he also seems like really ethically squishy. Yeah. That's it, sales pitch. <laughs> Did he ever have any prior convictions? Like, was he ever in trouble? No, and that was part of the discussion in his in his indictment and at his, at his sentencing. Apparently, he had a lot of people who stepped forward and said, you know, despite his goofy video and everything, you know, that has been reported about him in media, he's actually a stand-up guy and uh, very helpful. He's a volunteer. Um, and that's yeah. the garbage thing about mandatory minimums is that, yeah. you know, especially there's been some really amazing reporting about it uh, in the last few years. I think the Marshall Project may have done a piece, but it asked a judge, I think it was a district judge in Tennessee, and he talked about, you know, I am highly trained. I am at the top of my career. I feel amazing about the work I'm able to do. But as a judge, when it comes to mandatory minimum cases, I don't have a choice. I don't get to weigh in. I don't get to consider someone's, you know, what they mean to the community or what they've accomplished in their life or that this is the first case. I have to give them this sentence. So it just doesn't make sense in our judiciary system that this is, even exists. Like we're taking all power from judges who in every other way we uphold as like the person who's going to arbitrate justice unless it's a drug charge. And then they don't even get a choice. Well, yeah. And that's supposed to be the point of a sentencing hearing, right? Like everybody's supposed to come forward and say, all right, this is the reason why I think that the the sentence should be this way or that. And apparently they did that here, but the judge has no discretion about what to do. Yeah. It just sucks. That's terrible that, um, you know, as many people that are becoming multimillionaires off of dispensaries and, yeah. and you know, now legal marijuana or medicinal marijuana use that, um, that he gets, uh, you know, a sentence like this, but I've also heard that what the law can't keep up essentially with our changing times, like they can't move fast enough to adapt to what's going on. So they say, well, and that's what Congress is supposed to do. 
But here we are with a Congress that can't agree on a lunch order, let alone major, <laughs> major legislative change. Megan. Bridges. What's happening? <laughs> More bridge news. Always bridge news. <laughs> Always bridge news. Um, this one's good news, sort of, depending on where you live and how you feel about it. So Norfolk Southern Rail Company has been fighting for, gosh, five, 10 years to be able to do double stack trains. So if you've ever gone through the south side and you've seen the double stack trains going kind of against the hillside there, that's the only spot in the city where they're allowed to run those because of the height necessary to be able to do it. And I forget exactly the particulars, but it's something about like the width of the tracks and distance from the ground. And you know, there's a lot of safety components that go into that. Well, I don't know if you remember, but in 2018, we had the derailment. On the south side, yeah. Yeah, on the south side that shut down a lot of Station Square. Um, we were really lucky. Nobody was injured. There weren't any issues. The cargo wasn't anything dangerous. I think it was a bunch of diapers. Like, I remember oh, wow. yeah. Peduto's <laughs> chief of staff had just had a baby, and he was, like, standing in the middle of all these, like, diapers everywhere. And he's like, I really kind of want some of them, but, like, that's not appropriate either. <laughs> But yeah, so they want to be able to, because the South Side area is just tricky and they're worried about it. And there's so many like reasons why they can't go like too fast and it like slows down the whole pipeline. They want to be able to run them through the North Side um, and part of the East End. So they've been asking to adjust the size and scope of a lot of bridges in the city for a long time. And the North Side in particular has fought against this for years. Um, community groups, um, the council person, Darlene Harris, was very against it. Peduto's administration was very against it. One of the few things they actually <laughs> agreed on. Um, but the company won. A mediator came in a few years ago and have been talking to different groups. And they've agreed that they're going to have, using a $20 million state grant, they're going to go ahead and move on I think it's four Pittsburgh bridges that are going to allow double stack trains to go through one East End area and three in the north side. Megan, you introduced us by saying that this was good news. Um, it sounds like you're going to have bigger trains going through more populated areas. Is that good news? Yeah. <laughs> the good news is that the railroad is paying for all of these bridge replacements. And uh, one of them includes South Negley, which has been in headlines a lot the last few weeks because somebody, and I guess I haven't seen anybody take credit for this, put up wooden four by four beams. And it looks like they're holding up the bridge over the <laughs> Martin Luther King Jr. busway. <laughs> it's so scary looking. But the city has said, we don't have the money to do anything about it. We can't fix it. Um, South Negley is one of those 22 bridges that still is and in poor condition. Hmm. And Ganey's administration is just sort of pushed, like they haven't said we don't want to fix it, but they really basically like we can't do anything with it yet. We got to get money. We got to do something. And so now Norfolk Southern's like, oh, we'll do it if you'll do this. <laughs> so does the North side get to like weigh in at all on, on this? So there's going to be a ton of public meetings where they get to talk about what these bridges look like. I know initially in the conversations about raising them, they also had the conversation about raising them even higher so that you know, it could open the north side back up again. You know, there's a history in the north side of splitting the neighborhoods. If you follow the, where the trains are now, you know, on one side of the street, there's all these like sort of old, a lot of them derelict, but certainly none of them are shining stars like businesses along the river. Um, and on the right, there's all these beautiful old houses and various states of repair, but there's like nothing linking the two at all. And that was sort of, that's what happens when you put, you know, 65 and a rail line right in the middle of it. So the thought was that if they raise all of these roads, then maybe it could link the neighborhood back together and allow for some future development down there. 
that remains to be seen. I don't know that two feet can accomplish that. I don't either. That sounds like a tricky argument. Um, and then, of course, the other thing that I found sort of amusing about all this is that so all these bridges need to be repaired in the middle of, wait for it, a steel shortage, which is just <laughs> so ironic for Pittsburgh. A steel shortage in the steel city. <laughs> Thanks, China. Well, from the steel city to a steel city native, um, if you guys are looking for something to watch this weekend, there's a new documentary series on Netflix. It's the Andy Warhol Diaries. Ooh. Yeah, it's a six-part portrait of Andy's life, and it explores all the different like art mediums that he perused through the eras. Um, I personally like didn't know a whole lot about Andy going into this, even though he is a Pittsburgher, uh, but it goes through his time as a director, a publisher, a TV producer, a scene maker, celebrity, portrait artist. Like he's really, he's really done so much. And through his posthumously uh, published diaries, it offers this really unique look into the very private life of Warhol. I started watching it last night. I'm only two episodes in. Um, but like I said, I didn't know a whole lot about Warhol and I've only been to the museum like maybe once. Uh, maybe I'll take a trip back uh, after watching the documentary, getting, you know, a new appreciation for it. But the producer spent a lot of time at the museum and talking with the archivists and the curators uh, that have really worked to preserve and, um, you know, contextualize contextualize uh, all of his bodies of work. What were some of like the most interesting parts about the series that, that don't give away too much? They go back to um, the church that Andy grew up in, the St. John Chrysostom Byzantine Catholic Church. That's in the four mile run, um, you know, kind of near Greenfield. And um, you can just see how much Andy's art was influenced by his Catholic background and the paintings on the church walls, um, the colors and the shapes of the portraits of the saints. And, you know, that very much had an influence on Andy's pop art and um, his kind of infatuation with icons. Icons are like everything in Catholicism. Uh, so the, I thought that that was really neat how his early days in Pittsburgh at, at this church really um, influenced his art that he is most well known for. Andy was so, I say Andy like he's like my friend. <laughs> he was, <laughs> I, th I just think he was so ahead of his time. I feel like a lot of the things that his art portrays now is kind of what we're going through now in this age of like social media and just this overexposure of ourselves with like, our own little individual celebrity. Yeah, it's like we finally caught up with him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know if y'all have ever taken like out of towners to the museum, the Andy Warhol Museum, but I always find it funny because a lot of times like I'll take folks there and they'll be like, well, this is kind of basic. Like, I've seen this before. And I'm like, yeah, that's because he invented it. I love the story of how the Warhol diaries got written. Like he, there was a, there was a writer I think for Spy, um, who he would talk to every morning at 9 a.m. for like yes. 20 years. And they produced like a 2,500 page tome that was like all of Andy Warhol. And then they, you know, edited it down to about 800 or 900 pages. And now it's finally turning into this series. It's great. Yeah, Matt, I thought that was really interesting too. Um, I, I had no idea. Um, and I think that that kind of lends itself to, um, the inspiration of how the documentary series portrays Warhol. So they use this cutting edge AI technique mm. to recreate Warhol's voice. 
Ugh, what did you think of that? <laughs> I don't, yeah, yeah. yeah, it can be a little uncanny, but I think it's kind of neat because, you know, Andy recorded his diaries through these phone calls. So it's almost like, you know, you, you can imagine him picking up the phone and these are the the recordings of all of these things, you know, that he went through that day or things that he thought were interesting or or the the very real emotions that he was feeling that he kept private, uh, you know, in the public eye. And it's very on brand for Warhol, like a reproduction of Warhol's voice is what they use for the movie. Yeah, he probably would have loved it. Yeah. Um, you know, but this approach generated a good bit of controversy last year. Um, oh, wait, is this the thing that they did for Anthony Bourdain? Yeah, it was um, It was for Roadrunner. And so they they faked um, Anthony Bourdain's voice without permission, but um, apparently this documentary series did get permission from the Andy Warhol fo- Foundation to um, use this robot voice. Well, that's better. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. Um, I Yeah, I, I found it neat. You guys should watch it and, and let me know what you think, too. It would be really, really strange to hear a robot version of any of our voices, I think. Um, but I guess, you know, they just use sort of the recordings that they do have of his voice to generate this. Um, I think it's kind of fitting. You know, he went to CMU and it's it's kind of funny like you know you can imagine that's some things that they're probably doing over there at the school I'm anti all of that I'm anti uh, those holograms that of the performers <laughs> that they try to bring back to life it's oh, yeah. all just very creepy to me I don't I don't want to hear you know unless it's an actual recording I'm like I get a little skeeved out about Hearing people from the grave. Well, and he still has family in the area, too. I don't know that any of them, um, you know, would have remembered him when he sounded like this. But I don't know. I can't imagine, like, you know, hearing, like, my uncle or, you know, grandfather or something like that. Somebody of that age um, brought back to life as, like, a 30, 40-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. According to the World Health Organization, today marks the second anniversary of the pandemic. We're still in it. Uh, Remember when we were all talking about the first thing we were going to do when this is over, and then it never ended. So what was your first real event? Like the first moment after March 11th or St. Patrick's Day weekend, for those of you who refused to cooperate, that you finally got to have a chill moment with friends? Newsletter editor, Francesca DeBecco. Yeah, so um, the first time that I gathered with friends, it was after a bit of um, isolation, you know, when we were all locked down. Um, My sister actually, like hosted a little birthday celebration for me and invited my oldest friends who I've known my whole life. Um, and so it was very quaint and quiet, but I was just so overwhelmed to see my my good friends again, you know, the people that I've known my whole life. Um, they grew up across the street from me and it was just like, you know, if I am going to break the rules and, and, and be social with anybody, it would be, you know, want to be with the people that I've, um, you know, kind of spent my earliest days with, my, my, my OG social pod. <laughs> That's sweet. Yeah. What about you, senior producer Megan Harris? Yeah, so the first time I really hung out after like lockdown started um, was almost six months to the day, actually. We got married, um, which was weirdly sort of the first big event that all of our friend group got to be a part of. And, you know, as the night progressed and the wine was flowing, um, I saw friends, you know, hugging and really like having those like more intimate moments that I think all of us had really kind of missed. No dancing though. So, you know, that's for an anniversary down the road. Sweet. Even sweeter than Francesca's story. Lead producer Matt Stroud. Mine is not that sweet. 
but um, so uh, I have a friend who's in Chicago, very close friend for a long time, and his birthday is July 4th. And uh, during the pandemic that year, um, my wife and I decided, you know, we're going to go. And so we drove to Chicago and we, he had a big party that was in Humboldt Park and it was outside. And it was it was one of those parties where like everybody was still feeling distant um, and everyone had like lawn chairs six feet apart or whatever. And just like you, Megan, after, you know, a few beers and, and some time into the night, people started, you know, getting, uh, you know, close again. And, and it was it was really a lovely time. And for me, I honestly really don't even remember. I'm pretty uh, introverted, so I'm usually in the house anyways. But I think one of my first social events back out was uh, a bonfire at a friend's house. We all work in film and we got a chance to catch up and talk about how we were all unemployed because the film industry had shut down. It was just nice to see people outside of the pod I had been sticking to for several months. That's all for today here on CityCast Pittsburgh. Our music is by Benji. He was even on Jimmy Fallon this week with Earth Gang. He's two of my favorites. Congrats, Benji. And if you don't already, please subscribe to our morning newsletter. It's wonderful. We'll be back on Monday with more news from around the city. See you then. Frankie. No, I'm kidding. Okay.